Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 85, Designing Fantasy Pantheons. Recorded Thursday, May 5th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and James Wyatt. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm James. We've got James Wyatt with us, recording live, at least for us, <laughs> from the uh, Wizards of the Coast offices. James, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Listen, James, tell uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself, why you're famous in the RPG industry, <laughs> on the internet, etc. Well, uh, I work at Wizards of the Coast. I have worked here since 2000. Um, I worked on D&D from 2000 until mid-2014 um, with credits on books like Defenders of the Faith and Deities and Demigods and the Eberron campaign setting. I was the lead designer for the 4th edition Dungeon Master's Guide. I was one of the lead writers for the 5th edition books, including the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Player's Handbook. I've written five D&D novels. Now, since 2014, I've been working on the Magic creative team. So I've written a bunch of short stories, like 10 short stories for the Magic website as well. Awesome. Wow. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Not as awesome. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> but no, that's that's great. Uh, I will say that the Eberron campaign setting is far and away my favorite campaign setting book, so that's exciting. Thank you. And Peter's a big magic player, so. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Well, not a competitive one, but I'm, I'm me very much there. <laughs> yeah. He, he prefers Highlander, so. Yes, yeah. me too, actually. Ah, there I play you go. a lot of Commander. Same here. Have you done anything besides Wizards of the Coast work? A long time ago, in past lives, I was in fact a United Methodist pastor. Also convenient for a Christian podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Especially cool. one where one of the hosts is a United Methodist. All right. I have actually since joined the Episcopal Church, but... Uh, oh, oh, there you go. Okay. Cool. And I believe you got a degree in theology, didn't you? I have a Master of Divinity, yeah. Um, okay. I also... My my BA was in religion, so uh, studying a wide range of religions. And I've, I've put both of them to some good use uh, over the last 15 years of my career. <laughs> Excellent. Very cool. Sounds almost like he should be doing this podcast instead of us. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're, we're going to resign and find... Uh, <laughs> A busy guy who's more qualified. Wait, okay. No. Got it. <laughs> now we just need a co-host for him. Oh, I know. Let's go track Derek White down. Because <laughs> he's not busy enough either. <laughs> yeah, perfect. All right. Well, James, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, before we get to our main topic of designing fantasy pantheons, I want to give you a chance to plug something that you think our listenership might like and be interested in, that you're working on or have just come out, anything like that. Two things, if I may. Sure. One is I wrote a story that went up on our website yesterday called the Lunark Inquisition um, on the Magic website, which is one example of putting my extensive experience in church politics and administration to work in my fiction. Um, it's set in the world of Innistrad, and it's about kind of the, the fracture within the Church of Avicen as things go crazy on that world. Okay. Um, and the other thing that might be interesting from a more game playing perspective is the week before that I wrote a crossover piece uh, about playing Dungeons and Dragons on the world of Zendikar, a magic world. So thought that might be fun uh, yeah. for people who are listening to this to know about. That particular piece was actually really cool. Thank I you. really enjoyed that. And, and I think there's always been this kind of clamoring for some sort of official crossover. Yeah, I have become aware of the extensive history, uh, to at least to some extent. I think when I started working here in 2000, I was hearing the last dying echoes of people talking about that. Um, but in the 16 years since then, suddenly we couldn't find anyone to say no. So <laughs> so there it is. Nice. I, I'm really excited uh, to have that out in the wild because it's hard to say that, you know, an infinite variety of planes is not a good D&D &D setting. Right. I hope the response is so good that you guys feel compelled to do setting books for some of the other magic settings, because I would love a source book for Ravnica and... Cough, cough, Innistrad. Alara. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so, and uh, which one was it with Urza and Mishra? That was Dominaria. That was the first yeah. one. Yeah. That's when I was playing was like Ice Age. So, you Wow, know. okay. Yeah. Uh, Boy Scouts. 
big Magic the Gathering time for me. Yeah, Go right. figure. But anyway, I'm really excited to have that out there. I, it's a really cool article. I will link uh, the Lunark Inquisition story and that D&D and Zendikar article in our show notes. Awesome. Uh, and I'll put uh, a link to your homepage as well, James. Great. Thank you. Of course. Which I never update, so. Uh, but it's some official information. We have a lot to talk about, so while Peter and I have some news and notes, nothing is so urgent that I think we can't put it off till next episode. Nah. I do want to remind everyone that you can find us on social media, facebook.com slash saving the game, twitter.com slash saving the game. We're on Google Plus as well, though there's no convenient URL for that. And if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, listen to us on Google Play, Music, on Stitcher, on RPGpodcast.com, anywhere fine podcasts are given away for free. Let's get back into our main topic here, shall we? And let's uh, start us off with some scripture. All right, James, uh, since you're the guest, do you have one of these that you particularly want to read out? Uh, I'll take the long one. Okay. If that's All okay. Right. <laughs> I'll start with Deuteronomy then. Great. All right. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. This next one is Job 4, 15 through 17. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? And then Acts seventeen twenty-two to 25. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So... We figured that since we've got somebody on who's designed a lot of fantasy settings, we'd probably talk a little bit about designing fantasy settings. What a concept. <laughs> I know. And specifically, talking about designing fantasy pantheons. Really, one of the, the core elements of a proper high fantasy setting, I would say. Yeah. Now, these principles are applicable to any setting with multiple deities. Really, maybe even a monotheistic setting with a host of lesser powers. We're just focusing on fantasy to keep the conversation on track and to take advantage of James Wyatt and his design history. <laughs> um, so he, let's start off with a big question. What are the qualities of a well-designed pantheon, or pantheons if it's something like Forgotten Realms and there are multiple pantheons of deities? There's a lot. <laughs> I think, first of all, is the, these gods are going to play a part in the lives of characters whether you're i guess writing a fantasy story or playing a fantasy game um so they need to be something that you can grasp wrap your head around that kind of makes sense at an intuitive level that are relatable as characters in their own right regardless of the scope of the role that they play in the world if that makes sense it does and i think relatable to players as well as characters yes, exactly so being able to say God of X, God of Y, God of Z is mm -hmm. kind of a, a huge oversimplification in terms of real world religion often, but uh, gives a very easy hook to hang things on. Um, with Eberron, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head here. Um, of course. Eberron, you know, we kind of, for the Sovereign Host, we had those easy hooks, but tried to add a lot of nuance to that, which is fine. I think. If you, as long as you start with that hook and then start to think, okay, this is the god of fire, what kind of is related to that? What flows out from that? And that, um, I think, reflects the way that ideas of deities in the real world do evolve as societies change, as, as ways of thinking change, as, I guess, not so much in the real world setting, as the, the ways that gods manifest or interact with the people change. Okay. No, I, I think that's all true. I think... That's also a opportunity for distinguishing those gods from something generic. So yeah. it's the god of fire, but it's specifically like the hearth fire, not wildfire. Exactly. You know, those those little 
tweaks and smaller definitions and that sort of thing. Exactly. And then as you think about hearth fire, well, that extends then to family, to comfort, to the security of being protected in the home, of uh, cooking, of food, sustenance, um, parenthood, stuff like that. Yeah. I would yeah. say you probably need to cover the major concerns of any society, you know, basic survival requirements, uh, mm -hmm. nature, social mm -hmm. concepts like, you know, uh, justice, family, uh, home, like, you know, this hearth deity that we just described, things like that. Yeah. And uh, interestingly, one of the things you will often see is, is a sort of division, maybe a generational thing, like the old gods, whether it's the, the Greek titans or the parental figures of Greek mythology are the ones who are the primal natural forces, and then their children are the ones who are gods of aspects of civilized society. Right. Mm -hmm. So Zeus is the storm god and powerful thunder and and also father, the, the parental figure. But then Athena is the god of civilization and wisdom and learning. And Apollo is poetry and music, the, the children of those gods. So you can sort of see the, the chronological development, you know, yeah. um, where the earliest society was focused on the the real basic necessities of life. And as that society evolved, their gods had children that evolved with them and, and took on additional aspects. A quick question here, and this might be a little bit of a diversion, but as you're designing a pantheon, let's say you've got, you know, the, the whole Zeus and Hera thing. Do you think it's profitable to try and when you're making like the, the child deities of those two parent deities, do you think it's important to try and incorporate aspects of those and see the kid as kind of the average of the parents or the... Some of the parents, or do you think it's better to work from whole cloth, or is that very setting dependent? Um, there there hmm. are questions of sort of fundamental approach. If you are trying to build the pantheon of a culture, uh, and this is something I want to talk more about in, in a bit, I guess, is, you know, like the Forgotten Realms pantheon is just this slew of gods who might or might not have any relationship to each other. But at the point where, where you're talking about these two gods are married and have children, um, you're, you're talking about a sort of different pantheon model. So at that point, I guess you can think thematically of, okay, storm plus earth equals agriculture, maybe. <laughs> um, but also, there's no reason that the god, god of storm and earth might not have a child who's the fire god, because it's the rebellious one who went off and set fire to things that his parents cared about, or um, you know, so it comes down to the the mythology that you're building, the stories that you want to tell with those gods. Okay. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. <laughs> um, I think the other thing, and this I think is what you wanted to talk about, James, is the unique details of each culture. Typically, is a where some of the most unique deities have a chance to show up. Yeah, you guys had talked about examples like the god of horses for a, a culture that relies on horses as a way to go around. Right. I'm trying to think of other examples off the top of my head to show how clever I am, and it's not working. No, uh, well, well I mean, before we always... started recording, we started talking about the fictional god of technical difficulties. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> There's that, yes. That is something unique to our culture. <laughs> well, that's a good point, actually. But um, yeah, I, I think, and this is also um, something very gaming-related. If you're doing a... Uh, a racing class game like D and D, um, where you have some big character options. Yes, this is where you might tie those character options to the setting. Absolutely, yeah. To to make sure that every every race, every class, and every alignment has at least one strong choice for which deity to worship in the pantheon. It's something that um, I know we talked about in the third edition Deities and Demigods book. We started off with this think about this kind of grid of things, race and class and alignment. Um, and so then as we were adapting uh, historical pantheons, the Greek and uh, Norse and Egyptian pantheons to D&D, we decided to to apply the same principles and basically, you know, not just give you the same gods that were in the first edition deity and demigods, but think about what, how do halflings interact with the Greek pantheon? Well, what if we made Tyche a halfling? Uh, which is to say, you know, she's only 15 feet tall instead of 30 <laughs> or, <laughs> right. or whatever. Um, or what's the dwarf god in the Egyptian religion? And that was part of this whole process of trying to make them stand alone as fantasy pantheons and not just be, 
here's what the Egyptians did, which might or might not have any actual accuracy because Egyptian mythology is so difficult. Okay, to since <laughs> I'm way at. out of arm's reach of my copy of Deities and Demigods right yeah, now. Yeah, me too, unfortunately. Uh, which, which god did you pick as the dwarf one in the Egyptian religion? Do you remember? Oh, shoot, I don't. That's okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sure somebody will remember it. Yeah. And, but the, the key thing is, when you talk about, oh, this is a, a halfling member of the Egyptian pantheon, or uh, the Egyptian god of the dwarves, that sort of thing, that's also memorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I think, is one of the most important parts of designing this, especially if it's going to be a setting like Forgotten Realms, where the deities are very interactive. Yes. Because you'll need to know, the players need to remember who they are. That matters. As a rule, yes. It, it's absolutely important that the, the players understand and remember who the major players in the Pantheon are. Um, so that when they come to a new city and see, oh, this city is devoted to Belzenlock, pick a name, not completely sure. at random. Um, oh, I know what that means. I know that Belzenlock is actually a really bad example because it's a name from magic lore, uh, who is a demon. So Thurston is the god of thirsty people. Therefore, if I go to this uh, city and it's dedicated to Thurston, I know that I'm going to be able to find lots of places to get something to drink. Right. Or perhaps the opposite or, you know, something, but it's going to be related to that. Exactly. It's either right. built or in a desert or over a freshwater spring or possibly if I, both. If I want to get a drink, I have to go to the temple because it's sacred and regulated or something you know sure. like the sacred spring uh, yeah like that okay this is actually turning into something interesting yeah or they've they've got the only clean water in the whole city everything yeah. else is polluted or you know yeah um you know it's unsafe to drink because it flows over some toxic minerals or something but you can go to the temple of thurston and they'll give you clean water exactly they've got hmm. clerics creating water day and night somebody's writing this down right we're um, recording it <laughs> all right there we go <laughs> Uh, okay, but don't actually name the god Thurston. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a little silly, yes. Yeah. Um, the other nice thing about these memorable deities is not only is it convenient for players, that kind of knowledge actively increases player fun and player satisfaction. They yes. They get into the world a little more because they instinctively, or at least maybe not instinctively, but they remember, oh, right, that's this deity, it has these characteristics, you know, it's part of the world in this way, and I can interact with it without, without having to stop the game and go look it up. Right, and th that gets at a fundamental thing about creating fantasy worlds in general, is finding ways to, to give players easy hooks into it. Um, I remember after years of creating my own fantasy worlds and trying to get my players to understand the crazy stuff I was doing and pronounce the crazy names I was making up, we, my friends switched gears and started a campaign set in Roman, uh, the Roman Empire in the first century, um, mm. because I had been working on a thesis about Roman Egypt, and a friend of mine had been working on a thesis about Roman Britain, and so we ended up just carving up the world among the various DMs. The point being, the very first time we sat down to play, we started making jokes about the Gaul in the group, um, because we all had an immediate frame of reference of understanding this is what Gauls are like or Egyptians or whatever at some basic level, you know? Um, so a God that is both memorable and relatable, if there's that easy hook that I can attach to it, then I can just be that much hooked, more hooked into the world right away. Um, the flip side that I was going to say is I had an interesting conversation with Ed Greenwood a couple of years ago, the creator of the Forgotten Realms, mm -hmm. um, as we were undergoing the Sundering project that turned into um, a series of novels and adventures and stuff um but that one of the things that he always intended with the forgotten realms is to have some mystery in the pantheon that there were so many gods that that players couldn't possibly keep track of them all because as cool as it is to go into the city and find that it's dedicated to thurston <laughs> um <laughs> it's also cool to have them go into a dungeon and and see this altar with cryptic symbols that they don't know and they don't understand and they don't don't know what's going on and have some figuring out process going on there so I think there's there's a lot of potential in, you know, write down your pantheon, write down the the major figures, but then pantheons are full of lesser divinities uh, or demon princes or or whatever that various groups might be devoted to, and whose nature and agenda might not be so transparent. Right. And that builds adventure. Yeah. Anytime you can discover something interesting in the setting, you're you're doing well. Mm -hmm. And everybody loves a good mystery. 
the last key element in a design like this is that your pantheon needs to be relevant, or at least the major players need to be relevant. Right. A goddess of agriculture probably isn't particularly relevant in a completely developed world like... um, Like the the ancient Egyptian... world along the Nile where it's you can basically just push <laughs> seeds into the ground and they pop up. Oh no 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 that's that's very relevant. I'm thinking okay. of um um Ravnica Chorus, Cor- no Coruscant oh. Ravnica oh, is sure. another one. Yeah. 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 Big city world. Giant city world. You need food but you're not really looking for a a pastoral agricultural deity there. Right. And the, the key thing is though the god being relevant of the story of your campaign, right? If you right. are setting your campaign on city world but it turns out that there was a god of agriculture, and that god of agriculture has has died or been banished or whatever, either because the world has become a city or or uh, causing the world to become a city. Then suddenly it's explaining part of the world. So the example that I had in mind in thinking about this was um, elves versus orcs. Why do elves hate orcs? Because their gods fought in ancient times. Corellin and Groomsh. Corellin took out Groomsh's eye. That's why Groomsh only has one eye. And that's why all the orc shamans you see when you're going through the dungeon have taken out one of their eyes. So that mythological story plays out every day in the life of the adventurer. But I'm actually now hooked on this idea of the agriculture god who has been locked away for some reason and therefore people developed synthetic ways to to generate food and the world just crowded out all the fields and um what happens if that god comes back or are you trying to bring that god back or something like that yeah i mean you can't have an entire plane full of city if you don't do the ritual that gets rid of the agricultural god exactly now I'm just picturing how Karametro would react to the Selesnia. And... <laughs> awesome. uh, good times. So <laughs> I think these are the big points. Let's let's drill down a little. Let's get into these other flavor considerations. I think we mentioned degree of interactivity. Yeah. So um, the Forgotten Realms being sort of one, not quite extreme, but a world where historically the gods have meddled a lot in human affairs to the point where... We used the gods in the transition from first to second edition D&D to explain Mm -hmm. why the assassin class had gone away. Well, it's because of the time of troubles and the god of assassins died, so there's no more people who are assassins. Um, So a very down and dirty level of interaction. As opposed to Eberron, where we had the explicit goal of um, removing the gods, making them a little bit more unknown and unknowable and less directly involved in human affairs so that we can have sort of the the church politics angle and the the questions of belief more. Um, In fact, some of the writing that I did, I guess, especially the, my first Eberron novel um, in the claws of the tiger, the, the reason I wrote that novel is because I had this image of the hero of the story coming before the voice of the flame, the leader of the church of the silver flame in Eberron and basically assuming that she was a sham because of course she's a sham. She's this little kid who's pretending to be the, the speaker for a divine force. And of course she's not. And a lot of the uh, interesting character development in the story comes comes out of that relationship. Yeah. There are different kinds of interaction. You, you could have a, a pantheon where the gods are very present, but doing good things for people all the time. You know, maybe the god lives in the temple. And so you go to the temple to get a blessing. And yeah, you get a blessing from the god. <laughs> and it's a very concrete, measurable thing. Or you can have a pantheon where, uh, like the Greek pantheon or the gods of Theros, which are based on the Greek pantheon, where the interactions between the gods just cause chaos for people all the time. Great. Zeus and Poseidon are fighting again. (laughs) This means natural disasters or strange monstrous children appearing (laughs) in the world and making us create mazes to keep them in. A 10-year battle in front of Troy with just constant interference. Yeah. Yeah. So D&D specifically make some fundamental assumptions about the fact that gods are at least involved enough in the world to give spells to their clerics. Although sometimes we have, we creators of D&D over the course of its history have, have talked more about that magic being generated by the faith of the believers or the power of the gods being generated by the faith of the believers. But at any rate, there is a direct connection assumed between deity and cleric. Right. Barring some very specific setting like Dark Sun, where it's all elemental right. and that sort of thing. Yeah, Right, exactly. So if you're going to mess with that degree of interactivity to a significant degree, um, that might have 
implications for the rules of your game, as it did in Dark Sun. That really starts to become a major setting design and mechanical design right. issue. If the gods work in certain ways, well, rules for divine magic or worship or anything like that, whatever is involved in your game, have to reflect that to some degree. Right. And if you can go to the temple and get a blessing every day, what, what does that do? What are the mechanical implications of that? What does that do to the balance of your game? Stuff like that. Right. Is that just assumed and adventurers who are away from the temple for too long lose a... They, they get a negative? Right. However you want to define it. Exactly. Um, talking about negative interference, there are also evil gods. Mm-hmm. And describing those is pretty important. Because explaining evil in the world is a big deal for people. (laughs) Yes, yes it is. (laughs) And when that is a real thing in your setting, however real that is, it becomes really important to define. Yeah. Yeah, and there are different ways to do that that we explored a little bit in Deities and Demigods um, that that, um, rely on different models of a pantheon. The the more historically-based pantheons... They do have those stories of being a really tight-knit group, often a family of deities or a couple of families. And so an evil god within that is sort of a, an aberrant deity. It's an outlier. It's the rebellious child or um, the enemy of the gods who is something godlike but different. So Apep, the snake of, of ancient Egypt, who is the, the ruler of the underworld and the sun god has to fight his way through Apep's domain every night. The Titans in Greek mythology are cut off, outcast, banished, imprisoned to protect humanity from them. Um, Loki is a slightly different model of that, where he is, he's, because he's the son of Odin, he's that rebellious child, but because he's Odin's son, he's got some leeway, but he's fundamentally working at cross-purposes to the other gods. So right. that's one model. <laughs> in something more like the Forgotten Realms pantheon, where you just have a god for every aspect of life, well, then there are gods of the evil aspects of life as well as the good ones. You'll wind up with gods of things like cruelty or theft or... Or computer malfunction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. N- uh, Nero being probably one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. A god of death and murder. Yeah, exactly. Where in the real world, probably no sane person would worship a god of death and murder. But in a world where such a god is known to exist and will grant you significant power, then maybe that is somebody you're going to, you know, a terrible evil person is going to decide to follow. Yeah. And then, of course, there's kind of a a case where that's not really evil, but not entirely trustworthy. I would say almost more a, a chaos kind of god. Yeah. A trickster god. A coyote or a Nazi, something like that. I am really fascinated by trickster gods. And um, in the course of developing the storyline for the um, the Battle for Zendikar and Oath of the Gatewatch block that we just did uh, the last six months or so, I hit upon this really interesting idea of what a trickster is doing. So a little bit of backstory. <laughs> oh, <boy>. Please. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to try not to dive too deep into the minutiae here. But so Z- Zendikar... The basic gist of the story is these three huge extraplanar beings called the Eldrazi were imprisoned on that plane long, long ago. Um, and with the rise of the Eldrazi set we did a couple years ago, they broke out and their spawn started spreading all over the world. And these there's these three huge Eldrazi titans. And in the course of that, it was revealed that the merfolk had their pantheon of three deities and the core, this uh, white aligned race in magic, had, had their three deities. And they were actually badly remembered images of the three Eldrazi Titans. They had been transformed in the race's collective memory from monsters into deities. There's that that great art on uh, Shrine of the Forsaken Gods, where yes. it shows kind of the remembered <laughs> version. Yes, that was so good. Uh, it was one of those things where uh, I think Kelly Diggs wrote the art order for it, and um, we just got exactly what he wanted. So as we were writing the story of... Uh, the planeswalker, the merfolk planeswalker, Kiora. Uh, she had always been a devotee of the god Kosi, who is the bad memory of Kozilek. And Kozilek, as the Eldrazi Titan, is all about warping the fabric of reality. And Kosi then was the, the trickster god of the merfolk. And, you know, nobody actually admits to being of the Kosi creed, but people who are self-interested and looking out for number one will sometimes be devotees of Kosi. So Kiora was... And um, as she is fighting the Titans and being confronted with 
her gods in horrible alien flesh, she's still remembering the stories that she knows of Cosi, the trickster, and how Cosi always wins. And it struck me in thinking about, about the role of the trickster there, that um, the, the trickster tricks the other gods. Cosi always wins when he's up against Ulamog, I guess, the, or Ula, <laughs> the merfolk called him. So I, I coined this phrase, I think I coined it anyway, of, of theistic atheism, where you have stories of gods, theistic stories, that are undermining your belief in the gods, so atheistic. Um, and I think that there's actually something really interesting there from, from a personal theological perspective. Uh, I, I am a strong believer in paradox, that Jesus is both div fully divine and fully human, and those two things are impossible and yet true. The end of the world is both imminent and transcendent. Uh, God is imminent and transcendent. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Um, mm -hmm. that, that paradox is kind of, the cross is the emblem of that paradox to me, undermining worship. Uh, it's, it's a stumbling block. It is blasphemy to say that God suffered and died, and that's what we do. <laughs> um, so, all of that was to say a, a trickster figure can serve the purpose in a fantasy pantheon or a real world pantheon of making sure that you don't get so hooked on your idea of what a god is that you lose sight of what the god actually is. Um, the trickster can serve the purpose of the cross, in effect, of being that stumbling block and saying, wait a minute, I'm putting God in a box that God doesn't fit in anymore. And have I gone way off track here? No, <laughs> no, no, not even slightly. <laughs> okay, we're, we're both just sitting here fascinated. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, to, to, okay, to build on this a little bit, since you paused for a second there, um, I, I think some of those paradoxes are one of the things that makes Christianity such a beautiful religion in my mind, because it's, Absolutely. it's this cosmic thing that we can't comprehend. And yet it's, it's pure and it's kind and it's loving and it's very self-sacrificial. And those concepts all by themselves kind of fly in the face of what a lot of humanity thought of the divine as being like throughout human history. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, I mean, there's there's definitely some parallels to what's going on um, on Zendikar there, although obviously in the opposite direction, you know, the, the truth is better than you thought it could possibly be instead <laughs> yes. of the truth is much worse than you thought it could yes. possibly be. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one last note on trickster gods is they often tend to be the allies of humanity against the rest of the pantheon. Yes. The, the pantheon tends to want to, for example, keep fire away from yep. humans or keep other certain things, keep knowledge away. And the trickster God tends to sort of, slip in and say, wait, oh, no, I, I gave it to the humans, mostly because you didn't want me to. Yeah. And just think of that from a, a an allegorical perspective, right? Here we are, humans, huddling in the darkness with the night and the storm and earthquake and fire all around us trying to do us in. And is it just blind chance or the interference of this benevolent trickster that leads us to the protection that we need to to stave off these primal forces that would like to do us in. I think that's really neat. It is. Yeah. To flush out that pantheon, of course, there are always a lot of little minor characters in any pantheon in yes. the real world. Um, this is, as we said earlier, an opportunity for some of those mysteries uh, in any setting. Yeah. You know, oh, wait, who is this? Who? What is, what is this deity's nature? What is being worshipped? Is it divine or is it something else? Um, the blood of Vol is my personal favorite oh, uh -huh. of Eberron because it's it's functionally a religion, but there's nothing really divine being worshipped there. Yeah, that's always kind of fascinated me because it is a break from the traditional high fantasy pantheon. Yes. Um, but you know there are also heroes and little local deities and you know something worshipped because it happened right here and maybe it's. A manifestation of something greater, or maybe it's mm -hmm. just some little po local power. Who knows? Yeah. The variety is infinite, honestly. You can easily expand your pantheon in lots of interesting little ways just by saying, well, here's somebody minor, but relevant right now. Right. And local deities in particular are a potentially really interesting way to do that. You know, Thurston, it turns out, is not actually worshipped in most of the world. Thurston is a god of that, of Thursopolis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Nailed that, it. That, that <laughs> desert spring by the poisonous river. <laughs> exactly. Um, which was absolutely true of Egyptian religion as well. And there's, again, sort of a parallel process in the development of, of society and the development of religion where deities tend to be small and identified with individual groups of people. And as groups of people come together, there's one tendency that says, no, my deity is better than yours. But then when you have to forge a society out of them, it turns out, hey, look, all these deities are part of the same pantheon who are governed by the ruler of the gods, of course, which is our god, the god of the, the unifiers, the empire builders, who, who can unite that pantheon of, or that assortment of local deities into something like a coherent pantheon. And then sometimes myths get built up around the relationships among those gods that might actually reflect ancient um, interactions between those societies. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, if you're de- designing for a pa- fantasy pantheon, you might be going in the opposite direction and, and say, there are these two deities who are brothers and fought against each other and made up. And and turns out that they are also patrons of these two groups of people who more or less did the same thing alongside their gods. So sort of a top down or bottom up, either way you, you look at it. And this is why a snow god is worshipped in the desert. Right. Yeah. Well, and it, it may be too that it reflects history and because this is a minor person, maybe it was a major personage at some point. Exactly. But now yeah. it's not like this god of agriculture in a city plain, mm-hmm. you know, like Ravnica. Well, you know, maybe there are a few people who kind of remember, but otherwise it's not really relevant anymore because that one lost. Yeah, exactly. Just a quick note um, for our listeners that aren't familiar with Magic the Gathering. Uh, <laughs> Ravnica is a setting that is completely covered in city. So it's it's kind of like fantasy Coruscant if you're going to really Cliff's Notes it. Perfect. And to expand that a little bit further, all of these deities tend to have a retinue of sacred animals and plants and messengers, mm-hmm. active agents in the world, um, servitor creatures. Each one tends to have its own host. My uh, Encyclopedia of Mythology gets into, especially for the Greek pantheon, all these different plants and animals that are sacred to it. And, oh, well, this deity is so-and-so's messenger, and, you know, they do this particular thing on Olympus, and all of these little details that were all fleshed out by the Greeks. Yeah. There's all sorts of things you can do with that. I mean, in Greek mythology, (laughs) creatures like satyrs and nymphs that we now think of as belonging more to the pixie and sprite category, we've lumped them together as fae. They actually were sort of more like minor divinities nature mm-hmm. divinities but minor so pan's court uh, or, or retinue would consist of satyrs and nymphs not angels or demons or whatever so yeah right. and the, the the game has tons of fantasy creatures and you can choose to connect those however much or little you want to to the deities themselves with fourth edition D, we made an effort to create this class of of angelic beings who were servitors not just of good deities but of all deities where devils and demons which which had often been associated with evil deities in the past are more like outsiders they're they're not associated with the pantheon at all and they're kind of mold growing in the cracks of creation huh <laughs> yes i like that especially uh Zugdmoy, the god of the demon lord of fungi yeah <laughs> um, i've forgotten about her <laughs> <laughs> um but that's something too that Ed Greenwood has talked about is the the ways that um, the things that you might see in the world as a manifestation of a deity's pleasure or displeasure. You know, if you see the white stag running across your path in the forest or the black cat crossing your your path in the alley, that's not just a sign of bad luck or good luck. It's Apollo or, or Artemis expressing her favor or giving you a sign or pointing you in a specific direction. Um, or it's Beshaba, the goddess of bad luck, uh, warning you or or toying with you, <laughs> right? Um, giving you the hint of a notice that something bad is about to happen when it's too late to prevent it. When the reflective surface of the pond shattered like glass, that was a bad sign, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. And scripture's full of you know, examples of this, you know, angels as messengers and that sort of thing. Yes. Uh, you know, which you can easily draw from. I think messengers are probably a big one in any interactive setting, because it's unlikely that, you know, a particular fantasy deity is going to show up. Right. 
depending on your level of interactivity, like we talked about before. Right. I mean, it could be Pelors sitting at the cafe on the corner. You never right. know. But <laughs> more likely, it's going to be some messenger sent or guarding something. You know, that's mm-hmm. a very common fantasy trope, for example. You know, so-and-so set to guard this. Yes. Um, that sort of thing. Yeah, the angel with the flaming sword at the Garden of Eden. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Sacred animals, I think, matter a lot, too. I, that matters a lot for clerics or other servants of those gods. Oh, yeah, we can totally use that. We just need to say certain prayers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or we can't ever eat this because it's unclean. Right. Yeah. And that gets complicated, too, because you may very well have so many of those in certain settings that it, it becomes a juggling act. Right. And at that point, I think, focus on the gods that player characters care about. You know, it it would be pretty obnoxious as a DM to say, oh, anytime you kill a squirrel. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, there are 45 different animals you can't kill because 45 different gods will get mad at you. As opposed to, well, I'm a cleric of Thurston, and therefore I'm not allowed to kill water beetles. <laughs> right. Yep. I really got to stop using that example. No, no, uh, no, it's no, it's a good example. <laughs> it's consistent. We switch now, we're going to confuse people. <laughs> yeah. My point is more, um, it's one of those opportunities to bring some interesting uh, conflict and richness to the world where, yes. you know, uh, well, okay, we're traveling with this guy and he's real upset about killing water beetles. So right. watch out when you go yep. to the well and drink from the river all right, let's not take off our guide. And that's an example of the relevant thing that we were talking about before. When you have taboos like that or interactions like that, then the gods are relevant to what the characters are doing day to day, or at least on that particular adventure. And that's good. Exactly. And extrapolating from that a little bit, you can get to the point where you have these multiple contrasting pantheons. Again, Forgotten Realms, very well known for this. Uh, Eberron to a certain degree. Yeah, there's sort of different ways to approach that in, in world building, right? Where yeah. Forgotten Realms um, Forgotten Realms is a bit of a weird example, but if you look at the continent of Faroon, which was the original Forgotten Realms where where the campaign started, that's just the Faroonian pantheon is this whole scattershot assortment of gods, good and evil, um, with no necessary relationships among each other except when they come together and make decisions as a pantheon. Um, but then there are other continents on that world that have their own pantheons. And it's like the Faroonian deities and the gods of Zakara and the gods of Mulharand have all carved out their territory and said, this is mine and that's yours. And they don't cross boundaries, sort of. As mm-hmm. a, whereas on Eberron, our goal was to create religions, really, more than to create pantheons in the abstract. And so you have um, the Sovereign Host and the Silver Flame and the Blood of Vol and the Path of Light sort of coexisting in one place uh well in multiple societies um where they're just standing as different traditions that different people choose to give their allegiance to you might have a situation where pantheons are at war with each other which could reflect or cause war between their people Mm -hmm. the people who follow them or uh, like as we were talking about with the local deities pantheons that just kind of absorb everything into them um saying there are you know you thought these were different pantheons but actually they're all part of the same system and that's one of the reasons i wanted to include that verse from acts where Mm -hmm. paul is talking about there are so many of these gods to the point where and the athenians are clearly looking for god to the point where they've got altars written to gods that you know set up for to gods that they don't know about yet right you know it's it's a very open setting because they're they're still looking they're searching and you may very well have a, a setting like that where it's a completely syncretic environment. Turn the corner and it's a different temple. You don't know who this is. You don't know who this is. They might be major gods, but they're from all over. Yeah. There are four temples of water next to the river and each one's a different god. Well, okay, that's yeah. weird. But if you got people from all over bringing their gods with them. Mm-hmm. Or you go into one temple and it turns out there are statues of four different gods in there because people figure they're either different faces of the same god or they must be related because they're all controlling the same thing. Right. Or, you know what? Water's really important. We can't have the town without the river. Let's just hedge our bets. Exactly. Make sure we yeah, don't piss any of them off. Or even if you've got, like, multiple smaller rivers that feed into a larger one, 
you know, you could you could say that this, you know, each one of these cultures comes from one of the branches of that river, and then the big one that they all feed into is kind of where these gods all their their influence overlaps, and mm -hmm. you know, they kind of deal with each other. So now we have to as well. Sure. I dig that. That's cool. Yep. Um, you know, we were talking about Eberron, mm -hmm. false gods, and things that aren't that are worshipped as gods, but aren't really. They are not part of the older style fantasy gaming, but I think with settings like Eberron, a search to have a more interesting and convoluted yeah. and, uh, style of gaming, I think that's kind of been more popular over the past, what, two decades, I'd say? Yeah. Let's talk about those a little bit, because Magic also has this. Yeah, it's been interesting coming to work on Magic and realizing that one of the one of the important ways that Magic is different from D&D uh, as not being quite so much a high fantasy setting is that um, for the most part, gods, when they're depicted in magic are not actually gods. Mm -hmm. um, they are super powerful mortals who have taken on godlike positions, sort of like Star Trek. <laughs> um, yeah. Or they're yeah, super powerful mortals or godlike beings um, with, I guess the gods of Theros being probably the, the closest we've come to actual gods who are just petty and vindictive and dangerous. <laughs> Right, Greek. Yeah, for yeah. for the Star Trek analogy, so your your gods there would be things like Q or the Borg Queen, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or right. you know, very you some random Star Trek episode. You know, you go to a planet and there's this god there, or God is the planet, or whatever. Well, there's the one with Apollo. Right. Yeah. Yes. I haven't watched Star Trek in a long time. My analogies. Well, down. I just I remember that one because it seemed particularly relevant it's this original star trek episode for those who haven't seen it where they land and discover apollo yeah. who turns out to be a extremely powerful but at least mortal to some degree creature who can do all the things apollo could do and talked about how the other gods were very upset that they stopped being worshipped and just spread themselves out to the point that they dissipated and didn't exist anymore yeah that was how they killed themselves was just getting thinner and thinner and thinner, then spreading their atoms further and further apart until they weren't a thing anymore. They were just dust. Wow. Yeah, it was a fascinating thing because they they were so powerful they couldn't just, you know, fall on a sword or something. Right. <laughs> and I think magic also has a lot of demons and devils who are extremely powerful, posing as something kind of godlike as well. Yeah. Or you take um, Innistrad, the world we're in right now, where there is a, a church of the archangel Avacyn, and Avacyn is clearly powerful, and there are hosts of angels who serve her. It turns out Avacyn was made by a vampire planeswalker, Soren Markov. She's not, not even really a real angel. Hmm. <laughs> um, but the rights of her clergy are effective because Soren Markov taught these rituals that will protect humanity from vampires and werewolves so that the vampires still have a food supply. <laughs> Avacyn was created basically to maintain the predator-prey balance between vampires and humans. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. One quick aside, Innistrad continues to be my favorite Magic the Gathering setting, and every time it comes back around, I the itch to play gets really strong. <laughs> so, just saying. Yep. Innistrad is where I really started playing Magic in earnest. Uh, it is my favorite too. It's really cool. I kind of missed it the first go around, but I've got various Shadows Over Innistrad cards within arm's reach of me right now. So, <laughs> yeah. Mm. Let's let's jump a little bit and let's talk about symbolism. We've okay. talked a lot about sacred plants and animals as things that you interact with, but also I think just as symbols of deities. Those mm -hmm. work very well. You know, we talked about a white stag earlier. That's not just a messenger. It may also be a symbol that somebody has on a cloak or yeah. a book or above a temple, things like that. Yeah, that ties into the memorable aspect, right? That if you go into a temple and see that white stag symbol, um, I just made that up in connection with Artemis. I don't know if that's really a thing, but you say, oh, I know this is a temple of Artemis. I know what that means. Um, mm -hmm. Or if you see that white stag symbol on a sword that you find in a dungeon, oh, that's interesting. What does that say about the sword? Who created it? Uh, what was it meant to do? Um, right. Does it have sacred power? Mm -hmm. Could yep. it also be the sort of thing where you come into um, like an an unfamiliar society, but you're like, hey, those those plants 
planted all around that temple are aloe plants. That's probably a benevolent god because that's a uniquely beneficial plant. Right. You know? Right. And then you find out that it turns out, oh, no, they actually like aloe because of the uh, thorniness of its skin. Yeah. And or these are making... all planted around here because this god is hazardous and it's thought that the plants help to protect <laughs> against that. Right. <laughs> it's they... actually a sun god. If you yeah. go inside, you're going to get burned, but yeah. you can pick up the aloe on your way out. Yeah. Right. Maybe that's a little bit of tricking your players yes. to a certain degree. Done on occasion. I think that's fine. By and large, though, I think you'll want to kind of give clearer signals, probably in game. Yes. Just because you want your, again, you want the, the memorable aspect and you want it, symbols are in in a way a coded language. They describe things by allegory. And so it's, okay, this is a god of bad luck. So dice showing ones as a symbol for her, black cats, uh, broken mirrors. Yes. These are all coded language so that, you know what, I've got a ward against that. Or, you know, this is a temple, it's got these signs, okay, I know what to do in that temple, I know what it's about. I understand yeah. it fundamentally. Yeah, and that ties back to that that idea that a god with a clear hook is easier to grasp, easier to understand and relate to. Right. Um, likewise, holy symbols are often actively used by players in games. Right. I mean, it's a technical term in D&D, but in many other games, holy symbols have mechanical effects. Yeah. If nothing else, to repel vampires. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> yeah. and go away! For the... <laughs> Look at this object and go away. Uh, it's good for the player to know what object they're holding up when as the vampire runs away. Sure. Sacred architecture, I don't want to get into necessarily, but... <laughs> Can I tell you my pet peeve? Please. Pews. Pews in fantasy temples have no place. Thank pews, you. Pews yes. are an invention of the Protestant Reformation. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, just straight up borrowing church structure. I th yeah. you know the the structure of a a Christian sanctuary. Yeah, for fantasy games tends to annoy me because be more creative than that. If this is a water god, maybe there's just a giant pool and a lip around it where everybody stands. Yep, or a waterfall coming down the, right. the back wall. Yeah, or maybe you stand in the pool. Well, that's <clears> what I was going to say. You know, it's basically a wading pool. Everybody wades in. You go through the waterfall to the grotto in the back. Look at that. We've come up with six better ideas than, than a <laughs> temple with a statue in the front. Yeah. Right. You know, it, it's either a Christian temple or the Parthenon. Right. And come on. Okay. okay. So th this just came to me. I got I got to let this one out for the, the water god thing. So it's, it's set up. You've got like your pool thing, but it actually taps the current of the river that's going by so that the water is constantly flowing through there and you actually get the, the motion of it. Uh -huh. Also keeps it fresh and when everybody's standing around. It. Exactly, and there's certain rituals that only happen during flood season, but they can only be performed by the clergy because only they can do them safely. Perfect, awesome. I like it. Love it. Book it done. Print it. And that gets <laughs> into worship patterns. How is the god worshipped? And this is maybe the biggest thing because it directly affects players who have a connection to those gods. Yeah, or the player characters, I should say. And that's another case where the lazy world builder will say yes you go to temple on a certain day and listen to a sermon right <laughs> or you go and do a simple ritual and get a blessing yeah even going into a temple is not a universal thing it's something like that's the holy of holies you don't go in there unless you're a priest yeah it, yeah exactly or you know so and so is only worshiped under the open sky mm-hmm Certain prayers can only be said on horseback or while riding your giant sandworm or whatever. And that, that's another aspect of, of understanding what a pantheon means or defining that for your setting. Um, in a world like the Forgotten Realms, where there's a god of every aspect of life, the, the baseline assumption is that most people acknowledge the existence of all of those gods and worship them in some small way throughout the course of their life. Uh, not necessarily the evil ones, but I'm getting on a ship, I'm going to make a little offering to the god of safe sailing to make sure that I get to my destination. Exactly. Um, as opposed to, oh, I worship that god, which is sort of the assumed clerical model in most D&D games, but uh, it's not very historically real. <laughs> okay, let me pull out another example, because sometimes that worship doesn't look like what you would think of from a Christian background either, as you both yeah. kind of hinted at. I had a... a uh, a god of retribution in a fantasy setting that I ran 
actually my first really successful game through who would have been incredibly offended by people standing around singing hymns or, you know, sitting in a church kind of a structure listening to a sermon, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. the, the way to properly worship that particular God was to go out, find evildoers and punish them. Yes. That was all he cared about. What does the Lord desire of you? <laughs> yeah, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with him. Yeah. An emphasis on the doing justice, yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about all of these historical models that we can borrow from. Let's talk about how to do that. Sure. Because doing it respectfully and doing it well are, I think, related, but also maybe a little trickier than people might originally think. Yeah. You know, you can't just borrow something whole cloth. Probably. Probably. And that gets to what, what I was saying earlier about um, the work that we did on Deities and Demigods in 3rd edition, where mm -hmm. a whole cloth is sometimes very hard to reconstruct. <laughs> um, but to to draw inspiration from that those pantheons and build a fantasy pantheon using that as inspiration um, and trying to replicate the the structure of the familiar relationships among the gods, the structure of the cosmology as they understood it. Um, so I'm not sure, honestly, how respectfully we treated Egyptian and Greek and Norse uh, religions, historically speaking, but we certainly adapted them to fit our needs rather than trying to reproduce precisely what was done in the real world. You can also, I think borrow piecemeal and just take an iconic deity to kind of fill something out yeah forgotten realms does that if you've got tear from the norse pantheon stuck in the there i suspect largely because a player came to the dm's table probably ed greenwood's table with deity and demigods from first edition and said i want to worship tear or leviathar <laughs> um okay i guess those are gods here now um i, I can't actually verify that story but it might be true but like Thor or Apollo or Set are really resonant. And if you stick them in your pantheon or um, include them barely disguised, those are going to be really easy hooks for your players to grab onto and understand. Right. I think probably there's a really cool pantheon to be built out of just picking and choosing uh, specific gods to meet your the needs of your world um, from a variety of sources. Yeah. I think, too, you can immediate well you talked about giving players a hook right they immediately understand especially if it's a fairly popular deity that right. you know, everybody kind of has learned stories about yeah. oh yeah this is thor we understand kind of what thor does and who he yeah. is we've seen his movies well, okay <laughs> yeah. yes <laughs> there is that <laughs> but being able to borrow them also means you have access to a host of stories and symbolism and mythology that already exists, and that just saves you time. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, if you're not writing for publication, steal all you want. Nobody cares. It's not illegal. Right. Um, yeah, all of this it, is very much in the public domain. It's thousands of years old. <laughs> yeah, we, we a long time ago did a gaming curriculum episode. We've actually done a second one since then. Basically of media that gamers and GMs should consume to be better Gamers and GMs. Yeah, cool. And my, one of my recommendations was the New LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology. Uh-huh. Because Absolutely. it's a big old book of ideas. It's yep. really what it comes down yep. to. Yeah. And the other, the other thing, I've talked about this a little bit too, is just being a little bit more informed about historical religions, understanding how polytheistic religions work. Again, so that you're not just replicating American Protestantism um, in a right. fantasy setting, but understanding... Like in talking about the different kinds of pantheons, thinking about a, a tight pantheon, a, a pantheon of related deities who who are much more closely associated with each other, is that, that draws on a, a better historical understanding of how these religions work. Or mm -hmm. um, looking hopefully more respectfully at something like Hinduism and understanding the, the way that the Hindu worldview is broad enough to to incorporate understandings of other people's gods and and just kind of uh, see them as part of the same cosmos or thinking about how to do a monotheistic religion or something like a mystery cult that's another thing that i explored in deities and demigods for third edition was uh, looking at the greek mystery cults or the uh, greco-egyptian mystery cults and thinking about how to use those as something that a character might be um, 
initiated into, uh, like the Druid class has often used language of initiation without really mm -hmm. exploring that. Um, but if you're in the cult of Demeter, is that what, what being a Druid is like, is, is participating in that mystery, um, or as a model for what an evil cult that you're fighting against is doing. So I, I think there's there's a lot that you can get out of looking at historical and real world religions just to, to shape the way that you think about the pantheon as a whole, which I guess is really what we've been doing for the last hour or so. Yeah. Right. Okay. I don't have much else to add to this. James, any final thoughts? Peter? No, I think I'm good. I think I'm good too. Okay. I think that was fun. Yeah. I, yeah. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on with us. My yeah, pleasure. I mean, and we've invented Thurston, so that's a thing. Yeah. It's spelled T-H-O-O-R apostrophe S-T-O-N. No. 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 Get out. Just get out. You lost me on the apostrophe, I'm afraid. You lost me on the double O, but I, I was just thinking Thurston, like the, you know, 1930s name Thurston. Yeah. yeah Perfect. No, I, I, I was too. I just Fair enough. came up with a phonetic thing at the last minute there. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, James, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. It's a great pleasure. And again, uh, you can find James' work at Aquila.com. We'll link that in the show notes as well as the Lunar Inquisition story, the D&D and Zendikar document. Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm, I, I'm still in fantasy design right now. So apparently uh, yeah. this was good. Good. Very good. Cool. Yeah, it was fun to stretch some muscles I haven't used in a while. Thanks, guys. Okay, sure. Sure. All right. Have a good one. Take it easy. You too. And listeners, we'll catch you later. Thanks a lot. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com and itunes to hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org god bless and happy gaming